Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I grew up about 10 minutes from Claremore, Oklahoma, in between Owasso and Claremore, actually, in the northeast part of the state. And as you probably know, Claremore was home to Oklahoma's favorite son, the man Will Rogers. I remember it seems every year in elementary school we would go and visit the Will Rogers Memorial there in Claremore. Anybody else been there? Maybe a handful of you? Okay, more than the second service. Anyway, Will Rogers, he was part cowboy, part movie star, part newspaper columnist, part pundit, and his ability to turn a phrase is, is pretty much unprecedented. He wasn't a mere comedian. He was called a humorist, which I think is a sophisticated comedian, maybe. And maybe you're aware of some of his wittier one-liners. I'm going to share a few of them with you. He said that the trouble with practical jokes is that very often they get elected. <laughs> the difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. He said, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. This one's for Dallas Luter. He said, the income tax has made more liars out of the American people than golf has. <laughs> if, the pro is, if, if pro is the opposite of con, what is the opposite of Congress? There you go. There you go. He said, be thankful we're not getting all the government we're paying for. This one, not politically charged, but appropriate for our day. He said, what the country needs is dirtier fingernails and cleaner minds. I have to agree with that. He said, the minute you read something that you can't understand, you can almost be sure that it was written by a lawyer. <laughs> and this last one's maybe his most famous. He said, I don't tell jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. It was Rogers who could articulate the common man's sentiments about politics succinctly and cleverly, almost always humorously. And his work, his body of work, if you've ever been to that museum and just kind of read all of the material and, and looked at the exhibits, I think it reminds us that, that politics and government have always been a topic worthy of critical appraisal. And, and I'm not one who likes to talk about politics too much, particularly from the pulpit. But I need to remind you that Ecclesiastes 10.2 actually instructs you on how you should vote. I don't know if you knew that, but it does. It's the wisdom of Solomon that says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's to the left. <laughs> there it is. It's in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 10.2. You're going to ask me what that was later, so I'll just say it again. But that's enough silliness. We only have three more sermons left in our study of the book of Titus, and today we're starting the third and final chapter. So I want to do just a little bit of review, because I was gone last week, and maybe you haven't been here all of the weeks or certainly don't remember back to the start. But chapter one is largely about church organization, how the church is to order itself so that it can teach sound doctrine, so that it can rebuke false teachers so it can promote good works in the lives of its members. Chapter 1 has in it a very key 
passage about the appointment of elders and what those men are supposed to look like. That's chapter one. Chapter two moves from church organization to Christian obligation, which is how those who have responded to the gospel, how they are to live and relate to one another in the church and in the home. So older men and older women and younger women and younger men and slaves, how just this wide array of people in the home and in the church who have been rescued by God's grace are now to interact with one another. Chapter 3, it stays within the theme of Christian obligation, but the scope begins to widen a bit. In chapter 3, Paul exhorts Titus to teach or command the Christians in Crete about how they are to conduct themselves in the public square. How they behave civically is a big deal. They are not to leave their convictions at home. They're not to leave their convictions there at the church gathering. No, they have a civic responsibility. They are to be exceptional citizens. And if they are committed to to, to living the way Paul instructs, it's going to cause them to stand out, and therefore the church is going to have a profound influence on the culture. You see, it's impossible for Paul not to consider the church's impact on the culture, on the world. Paul has this missionary mindset, this this missionary obsession, really. And what that means in this verse, or this passage, is this. It's that if Christians who are guided by the Holy Spirit, if they are committed to certain attitudes and actions that are both biblical and countercultural, then the church will have an impact where God has placed it. Not just a moral impact, but an eternal impact. So the command is not simply be different, be strange, be odd. The command is be different because that adorns the gospel, which in turn advances the gospel. That's what's on Paul's heart. So Paul's encouraging Titus and subsequently the churches on the island of Crete, and he's, he's encouraging them toward this countercultural life. And as I've shared with you several times, this is really important because Crete, though a beautiful place, it was filled with lots of awful people. Several people in our church have visited the island of Crete and confirmed this. Yes, it's beautiful, but the people are a bit shady, it seems, even today. And it was Polybius, a Cretan historian, who said, it is almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than on Crete. Cicero, another, another historian, said, in Crete, piracy is honorable. It was a place where dishonesty was expected. Drunkenness was celebrated. Stealing was not seen as disgraceful. So it's to a church in that context that Paul has written these spirit-inspired words. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 together. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another." This is God's word. So chapter 3 starts with this call to remember. 
Verse 1 says, remind them. And the present tense of that verb is one that expresses continuous action. So what's really being said here is don't stop reminding them. Keep reminding them. Which that is a big part of a pastor's public ministry. The pastor is to spend a great deal of time reminding people of the things they already know. At one point in Martin Luther's pastoral ministry, he had a concerned parishioner come to him and asked why he kept preaching the same gospel message every week. They knew his reputation. They knew he was a scholar. The church was frustrated. They wanted new material. And I love what Luther said to the parishioner. He said, I preach the same gospel message every week because every week you need to hear it. Each Sunday you walk in here looking like people who don't believe the gospel. It's a great answer. We have to be reminded. The call to remember is a repeated one in Scripture. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy is basically a long sermon from Moses to the Israelites telling them to remember. Fourteen times the word remember is used in in Deuteronomy. Another nine times the phrase do not forget is found. Do not forget what God has done. Remember the Lord's faithfulness. Remember his commands. Do not forget his promises. Remember, English pastor Samuel Johnson, he was quoted as saying this, it is not adequately understood that men more often need to be reminded than instructed. It's exactly right. That's what Paul's doing here. He's telling Titus to remind them. And so this morning, we're gonna look at the different ways Paul is calling them toward remembrance. There are two big categories. First, remember your duty. That's verses one and two. And then second, remember your depravity. We see that in verse three. So first, remember your duty. And first, in, in these two verses, these first two verses, we see seven qualities or seven vices, or excuse me, seven virtues of the model Christian citizen. You might call these our obligations to civic life. And so first it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This duty pertains to one's attitude toward, toward government. And notice, Paul doesn't specify what kind of government they are to submit to. Nor does, he, nor does he say what level of government official they are to submit to either. He just says, be submissive to the rulers and the authorities. And this was important for the Cretan Christians for a couple of reasons. One, confessing Jesus Christ to be Lord was a treasonous statement in the Roman Empire. It was and is an absolutely true statement. Any real Christian must confess it. But in the Roman Empire, only Caesar was to be called Lord. The emperor was the one who had all authority. The emperor was even seen as divine, as a god to the Romans. So the reminder being given here is, even though we say Jesus Christ is Lord, and even though he is our ultimate authority, that doesn't exempt us from submitting to human authority. We make that statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, because we are first and foremost obedient to Christ, but that allegiance does not prohibit us from subjecting ourselves to government. The second reason this was a good reminder for the Cretans is because of their inherent character that we've talked a little bit about. The Cretans were not submissive people. They were rank and rebellious people. Polybius, again, who I've quoted almost every week of our study, 
he recorded how the Cretans repeatedly attempted insurrections against their local governments. They were not submissive. I, I found this interesting also. In World War II, the Nazis, along with the Italians, they tried and tried to take control of the island of Crete, but they could never manage to subdue the Cretans. They tried for four years, from 41 to 45, but eventually they, they just gave up. They were impossible to subdue. They have never been a people who would be easily ruled. In Romans chapter 13, Paul expounds on this command to submit to ruling authorities. And, and the reason that he gives in that letter in Romans, the reason he gives for, for submission is because all ruling authorities are ordained by God. Earthly authorities have power, but it's power that God has allowed them to have. Therefore, submission to governing authorities is by extension submission to God. All right, I'm just going to read these, the, the first six verses of Romans chapter 13. I think they'll serve as a good sort of commentary on this brief word here from Titus in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3. But Romans 13, 1 through 6, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So, sort of an expansion of this command here in Titus. And when functioning properly, as you can see in that, in that Romans passage, these governments are to promote good and punish evil. They're to keep order and serve the general welfare of the people. And you may argue with this a little bit, but I think from Scripture we can say government is a gift of God's common grace. It is. Society needs to be governed because lawlessness ends in anarchy. Human beings, being sinners, we must be governed. And to deny this is to deny the manner in which God has created the world to operate. I was thinking of this last night. In the millennial kingdom, what are we told will rest on the Messiah's shoulders? The government. So, so even in a context where Christ is physically ruling in perfect, in perfect righteousness and injustice, what will there be? There'll be government. And though we don't always love authority, this idea of submission to government, it's actually pretty easy in a society like the one we live in. A society where we elect our officials, where we have a functioning democracy, where you know, we may grumble, but, but ours is a country where we are allowed to be very, very active in how we are governed. And that's a pretty rare thing in human history. Representation, due process, we really are a privileged people today. The Roman government, however, the government under which the early church lived, not only was it thoroughly pagan and morally debauched, it was also oppressive, unjust, often brutal. The, the emperor at the time Paul wrote this letter, it would have been Nero. 
Now, Nero didn't start out persecuting Christians, but he was a maniac. Nero's actions were nothing less than diabolical. It's the historian Suetonius in his volume, The Twelve Emperors. He has some horrific stories regarding Nero, and I know Mark has shared some of them with you. One that he hasn't shared, at least to my knowledge, is that Nero, when he was emperor, he would sneak out at night, he would get in disguise, perhaps wear a wig or some other things, and he would lurk through the back alleys of Rome, and he would sneak up on people and, and murder them, stab them in cold blood, and he would do it just for fun. He had his own mother killed. He had his aunt killed. This, 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 this volume, The Twelve Emperors, just has dozens and dozens and dozens of accounts of just Nero in his perversion and in his wickedness and in his, again, diabolical behavior. And so when you say, man, I really don't approve of the president, or, or I don't like the way the state spends my tax dollars, what little tax dollars our state has. Uh, when you say those things, think about the way, or think about what they were dealing with in the first century. They're dealing with a maniac like Nero. And yet even Jesus commanded the paying of taxes to Rome, didn't he? Matthew chapter 22, he said, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And so the Bible makes clear that the Christian's obligation to respect and obey human government, it does not rest on government being Christian, on it being democratic, on it even being respectable. It's based solely on it being the God-ordained means by which human society is regulated. But on the other hand, if subjecting ourselves results in performing some action which contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture, we obey God, not government. Which brings us to the second virtue, be obedient. Be obedient. The Christians in Rome, they were not persecuted by Nero until they refused to burn incense in worship of the emperor. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it because it would be disobedient to God, and much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, much like Daniel before them, they were persecuted. You might remember Acts chapter 4. This is another example of this. Acts chapter 4. The Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And the apostles replied, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen or what we have heard. They, they could not obey the authorities. It was contrary to what Jesus had told them to do. So in chapter 5, the apostles go right on teaching. And after they teach, or in the midst of their teaching, they are then apprehended by the Sanhedrin. They're given a severe beating, and then they're let go. So we obey government until it asks us to disobey God, and when we come to that place, we obey God, and then we brace for impact. And that seems horrific, that impact part. But the glory of that scenario is this people will begin to notice the credibility of the Christian faith, not when it gets us something, but when it costs us something. And it could be that the church in this country is headed in what I would call a costly direction. I don't know the timeline on that, but I think that may be where we end up. One question that always comes up within this discussion of subjection to government is, what about the American Revolution? Was the behavior that led to this nation's independence, was it obedient to this command in Titus chapter 3, verse 1? 
I'll just say a few things. There are different views that people in the colonies would have held. One view would have been called the divine right of kings. So whoever is ruling you, you just submit to them no matter what. That obviously was not a view that prevailed in the colonies, but it did persist among some groups. Another view would have said, and this is the prevailing view, it said we're to support government in general, but it's also okay to overthrow a particular government that fails to promote good and act justly. So a government that fails to live up to what God designed needs to be displaced. So this view says we want to replace bad government with good government. We don't want anarchy because we agree with God. Government is a good thing, but not when it's oppressive, not when it's tyrannical. Then it must be replaced. And if you've ever read the Declaration of Independence beyond the first few lines, what the document is essentially is a, is a record of the ways in which the British were failing to govern. It's not a document declaring the benefits of freedom. It's a declaration attempting to justify revolution. There's also another view that says what led to our nation's independence was not a revolution. It was labeled that later. But in reality, the colonists were not revolting as much as they were defending themselves. The British attacked and they were just giving themselves acting in defense, if you will. There's some other views, but, but whatever view is held about the American fight for independence, what has to be remind, remembered is the founding fathers were not seeking to establish a country free from governmental authority. That's what distinguishes the American Revolution from, say, the French Revolution. The French wanted freedom to, from tyranny, but they wanted nothing in its place. This country's founders, they knew that true liberty required government, governmental authority. And so that's why our Declaration of, of, of Independence and later our Constitution are written the way they are. These documents were established and ratified by men who valued freedom, but they also valued authority. It was John Adams, our second president, who wrote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And he said that because religious people understand the importance and the place of authority. I ran across a great story this week. It's set in the 11th century, and it's about a German monarch named Henry III. Henry III became tired of his responsibilities and the worldliness of court life and decided to become a monk. When he went to the monastery and explained his intent, the prior warned him that the course he had chosen would be a difficult one. Your majesty, prior Richard explained, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That will be hard because you have been a king. King Henry was undaunted and replied, I understand. The rest of my life will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, prior Richard said. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has placed you. Henry did as he was told. After he died, he was given this epitaph. The king learned to rule by being obedient. The same might also be said of us. A proper orientation to authority should mark the life of the Christian. The third virtue these Christians are reminded to exhibit is that they're to be, to be ready for every good work. 
So Paul is not speaking of reluctantly or occasionally doing what we know we should do in society, but of willingly and sincerely being ready and prepared to perform every good deed toward the people who are around us. He's referring to a sincere, loving eagerness to serve others, no matter how hostile the society around us may get. The people whose lives interact with ours are to be impacted by our goodness and our generosity. This is sort of a call to radical neighborliness, you might call it. That manner of life is going to be in direct contrast with the false teachers who are in Crete. Remember in chapter 1, Paul said that they are men who profess to know God, but they deny him by their, de- by their deeds, being detestable, disobedient, unfit for what? Any good work. Here, conversely, we are to be ready for what? Every good work. See the contrast Paul's trying to make here? Moving to verse 2. We're to speak evil of no one. This is a word similar to the word used for blasphemy. But it's not in relation to God, it's in relation to other people. And what it means is we should not speak in a way that reviles or slanders others. So not just talking bad about people, but wanting to do harm to people by what you say of them. And notice how all-encompassing the command is. No one. Speak evil of no one. So no one includes that certain politician or that public Figure. And I'm not sure if Paul is, is really writing to address political posts on Facebook, but I think some application can be found here. <laughs> Speak evil of no one. There are plenty of people doing that. Plenty. There's an endless feedback loop of that in our culture. But we, we are to be people who find ourselves praying for those we disagree with, praying for those who are in authority. Then it says, avoid quarreling. The believer is to be a peaceable person. This is one of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. And it just means friendly and peaceful toward the lost rather than, than contentious or belligerent toward them. And it's in an ungodly and immoral society, even like our own, where it's easy to become angry with those who are corrupting it, isn't it? It's easy to get angry and combative, to to lash out, to send the letter to the editor, to, to comment on that tweet, to get involved in that inner office debate in a really negative way. But as Christian people, we must know that, that, that it's silly to get hostile toward an unbeliever when all they're doing is acting like an unbeliever. What are you expecting them to act like? Are you expecting unbelievers to act and think and have the convictions of someone who loves Jesus Christ? If you are, you'll be frustrated to no end. So instead of, of, of lobbing moral or religious hand grenades, we need, to, we need to pray for people. What a great way to avoid quarreling. The Bible tells us to give a defense of the hope that is within us, not an offense of the hope that we have. Paul then says to be gentle. The idea behind that word is is yielding or kind. It would would indicate a willingness to yield what we might consider to be our rights. We recognize that we are fallible people living amongst other fallible people. Thus, we 
will demonstrate a kind of tolerance even when we are wronged. We, we don't demand validation all the time. Or gentle. One writer calls this gentleness a sweet reasonableness. So not cantankerous or argumentative, not angry or hostile. Sweetly reasonable, graciously kind, gentle. Then showing perfect courtesy toward all people. Which means we're to be a people of, of humility and, and meekness. There's to be no harshness or, or arrogance on the part of believers. Any attitude of superiority or pride is completely out of place in the life of the Christian. We are to, people who, we are to be people who ooze grace and humility, always thinking of others, putting their needs before our own. Then that phrase, for all men. This again is the difficult part. This, this list of virtues, this is how we are to act with everyone. This includes even those Cretans who are always liars and evil beasts and, and lazy gluttons. And you know what? As we look at that, it's only by God's grace that we can hope to function in this way. But it's our duty to remember it. And in light of that, sort of complementing that duty to remember or those, those duties to remember, we're also to remember something else. We're to remember our depravity. And it's in remembering our depravity that squashes any feelings of spiritual pride or superiority. Recalling what God has saved you out of, recalling what you were B.C., before Christ, that is crucial to applying the gospel to life. So just as there were seven virtues in the list of duties, here are seven vices. And these vices, they may seem to be a bit exaggerated, yet Paul describes unbelievers this way in several different places in the New Testament. So here's what you need to actually believe. Paul is describing you here. This is you. This is me. That's why Paul uses the pronoun we He's including himself in this very description. And he leads off by saying, first, we were foolish. Which is to say, before we came to Christ, we were, we were without spiritual understanding. Not only were we ignorant of spiritual things, we were incapable of understanding spiritual truth. There was no work of the Holy Spirit. There was no illumination of our hearts toward the scriptures. There was no comprehension of the gospel. Our foolish hearts were dark and our lives matched the condition of our hearts. We were foolish. Then it says we were disobedient. We were disobedient both to human and divine authority. This is a mark of the unbeliever. Maybe not always disobedient to every single thing, but inherently disobedient. We don't have to be taught disobedience, do we? It is just in us. Ask a parent of a toddler. They don't teach those little beggars to disobey. They just do it most of the time. It's in them. Disobedient, then deceived. This, this picture's following false, guide, false guides on the wrong paths. Before coming to faith in Christ, you believed the lies of the world. You believed the accusations of the devil. And that deception wasn't just being on the wrong path it was also convinced that you were on the right path. So many believe that they are enlightened, yet they've bought in to a lie. They walk around deceived. 
Then it says enslaved. Scripture clearly and repeatedly indicates that, 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 that before salvation, a person is enslaved to sin, which basically means you're in bondage. We, you cannot escape your sinful condition. You cannot free yourself. And in most instances, you don't even want to. You're chained to sin. It's the, it's the default condition of your heart. You are subjected to it. And there's a point to be made about subjection here. A Christian may not like to be subject to a government, like it says in verse 1, particularly an undesirable government. But left in our sins, we are in subjection to something far, far worse. Something far more destructive and damaging has us in bondage. So either way, Christian or not, you're going to be submitting to something. It's like Bob Dylan wrote, you've got to serve somebody. And the lost man is stuck serving his enslaved, sinful nature. What are you going to be in subjection to? Then it says malice. This word is just an evil disposition of the mind perversity, wickedness. And it's not just a moral deficiency, but it's also something that destroys fellowship. It ruins relationship. Malice is a way of living that seeks to devour other people. To varying degrees, the unsaved spend their life maliciously. Sixth, envy. Envy and jealousy, these are driving factors in the life of the unbeliever. And we may think of envy as a lesser sin, sort of an internal sin that doesn't impact those around us. But listen to Proverbs. Proverbs 17, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? What's the implication there? The implication is there's something worse than wrath and anger, and it's envy. It has a corrosive effect on your soul. The last vice hateful and hating one another. Sinners cannot stand each other. They're hateful, so they hate. It's quite a list, isn't it? It's quite a list. Paul says, don't forget the track you were on. Remember how bad off you really were. And it's only when we truly believe that apart from Christ, there was no more hope of heaven for us than there is for the worst sinner we can think of, only then are we truly beginning to understand the gospel. Maybe you saw the uh, parole hearing for O.J. Simpson this week, or at least you saw the verdict of it. The juice is loose, some are saying. And here's why I bring that up. I suspect O.J. Simpson of several things. I'm sure you do also. I suspect O.J. of several things, but I know one thing is for sure. I need forgiveness no less than he does. Do you believe that? You should, because it's true. Puritan Thomas Watson, he wrote something profound on this subject. It was in a sermon titled, Four Sad Evils. He preached it in the 17th century. He said, the sins of the ungodly are looking glasses in which we may see our own hearts. Do we see a heinous, impious wretch? Behold, a picture of our own hearts. Such would we be if God left us. What is in wicked men's practice is in our nature. 
Sin in the wicked is like fire which flames and blazes forth. Sin in the godly is like fire hidden in the embers. Christian, though you do not break forth into a flame of scandalous sin, you have no cause to boast, for there is as much sin in the embers of your nature. You have the root of all sin in you and would bear as hellish fruit as any ungodly wretch if God did not either curb you by his power or change you by his grace. Wow. In the great story by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, there's a scene where a bishop gives shelter to an impoverished ex-convict named Jean Valjean. Valjean then goes on to steal the silverware from the bishop, leaving his house in the middle of the night. The police arrest Valjean. They bring him back to the home of the bishop. And in that scene, the bishop does something that turns the course of the entire story. He tells the police he had given the silverware to Valjean, and he even adds two candlesticks to Valjean's bag. And it's that act of mercy that changes Valjean's life. This act of grace from the bishop, it exposes the sin of Valjean in a way that the law never fully could. And from that point on, Valjean shows great mercy and care to others. He's profoundly generous. He vividly saw what he had been saved from, and it just totally changed the way he lived his life. Verse 3 is an attempt to show you and me what we've been saved from. It's showing us where we were apart from the grace of God. And I love Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why our lives looked like this, malicious and envious and hateful, and deceived, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for you because you'd kind of pulled yourself together a bit and he just needed to get you the rest of the way. He didn't die for you because there was some sort of potential in you that he felt like really could be actualized with his help. Christ died for you while you were in that place. He met you in that condition. And it was an expression of the Father's love for him to do what he did. If you're here today and you know the sinful condition that you have, and you, you, maybe you're flirting with this religious thing, sort of thinking, okay, if I can get on the right track or maybe I can sort of start moving in this direction, Christianity might work out for me. Well, unless you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, recognizing that he has come to you in your spiritual darkness, this Christianity thing will not work out for you. Recognizing your condition and being broken of it is all the fitness required of you. When you recognize that, when you recognize that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that you've been forgiven of, then you are ready to be saved. If you're ready to be saved today, put your faith in Jesus Christ. The purpose of this book we see it again and again, and we'll see it in the weeks to come, is live lives that put the saving power and grace of Jesus on display. That's the purpose. 
And these verses here are to remind us that the purpose of the Christian is not to reform government. It's not to change a culture by way of power and authority. You don't get a godly society through legislation. The Christian is to proclaim the gospel and adorn the gospel with how he or she lives because there is far greater impact through our weakness and through our humility than through any perceived strength in us. That's the way of our Savior. That's the way of Christ. I can't wait. We're going to circle back on verse 3 next week. I know it's the bad news, but if you read on and saw verses 4 through 8, there's a lot of really good news coming. So be prepared for that as we gather. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for a passage like this one that is challenging to us and really profound in many ways as well. I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the hearts in this room well beyond anything that I could have said or communicated. God, I pray that um, the people here would remember their duty. They would see the way in which they are to live as a contrast society, as a city on a hill, as salt poured out for the preservation of those around us. But God, that, that endeavor would be marked by a profound humility that remembers their depravity, remembers what they've been saved from. Lord, thank you that we live in a country and we live in a time that is fairly easy to submit. It's fairly easy to subject ourselves to governing authority. But Lord, we recognize that might not always characterize our time. So give us strength for the days ahead as well. Thank you for our time and worship this morning. Thank you for the encouragement that we've been able to give one another. And certainly thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray.